Welcome back, SCOTUS fans. In Justice Thomas's recent concurring opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson, he wrote of three past substantive due process decisions he said he would like the court to reconsider in the upcoming term. Obergefell v. Hodges from 2015 regarding same-sex marriage, Lawrence v. Texas from 2003 regarding same-sex intimacy, and Griswold v. Connecticut from 1965 regarding contraception. Each of these cases are featured in their own Listener Library episodes this season, but in this episode, I'll be reading Justice Thomas's concurring opinion that inspired me to feature these older cases in the first place. Now, regardless of your position on the issues in these decisions, you'll want to hear them all before the October term begins. And now, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Justice Thomas, concurring. I join the opinion of the court because it correctly holds that there is no constitutional right to abortion. Respondents invoke one source for that right, the 14th Amendment's guarantee that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The court well explains why, under our substantive due process precedents, the purported right to abortion is not a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. Such a right is neither deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, nor implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. The idea that the framers of the 14th Amendment understood the Due Process Clause to protect a right to abortion is farcical. I write separately to emphasize a second, more fundamental reason why there is no abortion guarantee lurking in the Due Process Clause. Considerable historical evidence indicates that due process of law merely required executive and judicial actors to comply with legislative enactments and the common law when depriving a person of life, liberty, or property. Other sources, by contrast, suggest that due process of law prohibited legislatures from authorizing the deprivation of a person's life, liberty, or property without providing him the customary procedures to which freemen were entitled by the old law of England. Either way, the Due Process Clause at most guarantees process. It does not, as the court's substantive due process cases suppose, forbid the government to infringe certain fundamental liberty interests at all, no matter what process is provided. As I have previously explained, Substantive due process is an oxymoron that lacks any basis in the Constitution. The notion that a constitutional provision that guarantees only process before a person is deprived of life, liberty, or property could define the substance of those rights strains credulity for even the most casual user of words. The resolution of this case is thus straightforward. Because the Due Process Clause does not secure any substantive rights, it does not secure a right to abortion. The court today declines to disturb substantive due process jurisprudence generally or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. Cases like Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, 
right of married persons to obtain contraceptives. Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts. And Obergefell v. Hodges, 2015, the right to same-sex marriage, are not at issue. The court's abortion cases are unique, and no party has asked us to decide whether our entire 14th Amendment jurisprudence must be preserved or revised. Thus, I agree that nothing in the court's opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. For that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous. We have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. After overruling these demonstrably erroneous decisions, the question would remain whether the constitutional provisions guarantee the myriad rights that our substantive due process cases have generated. For example, we could consider whether any of the rights announced in this court's substantive due process cases are privileges or immunities of citizens in the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. To answer that question, we would need to decide important antecedent questions, including whether the Privileges or Immunities Clause protects any rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution, and if so, how to identify those rights. That said, even if the clause does protect unenumerated rights, the court conclusively demonstrates that abortion is not one of them under any plausible interpretive approach. Moreover, apart from being a demonstrably incorrect reading of the Due Process Clause, the legal fiction of substantive due process is particularly dangerous. At least three dangers favor jettisoning the doctrine entirely. First, substantive due process exalts judges at the expense of the people from whom they derive their authority. Because the Due Process Clause speaks only to process, the court has long struggled to define what substantive rights it protects. In practice, the court's approach for identifying those fundamental rights unquestionably involves policymaking rather than neutral legal analysis. The court divines new rights in line with its own extra-constitutional value preferences, and nullifies state laws that do not align with the judicially created guarantees. Nowhere is this exaltation of judicial policymaking clearer than this court's abortion jurisprudence. In Roe v. Wade, the court divined a right to abortion because it felt that the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty included a right of privacy that is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. 
in Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania v. Casey. The court likewise identified an abortion guarantee in the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. But rather than a right of privacy, it invoked an ethereal right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. As the court's preferred manifestation of liberty changed, so too did the test used to protect it, as Rowe's author lamented. Now, in this case, the nature of the purported liberty supporting the abortion right has shifted yet again. Respondents and the United States propose no fewer than three different interests that supposedly spring from the Due Process Clause. They include bodily integrity, personal autonomy in matters of family, medical care, and faith, and women's equal citizenship. That 50 years have passed since Roe and abortion advocates still cannot coherently articulate the right or rights at stake proves the obvious. The right to abortion is ultimately a policy goal in desperate search of a constitutional justification. Second, substantive due process distorts other areas of constitutional law. For example, once this court identifies a fundamental right for one class of individuals, it invokes the Equal Protection Clause to demand exacting scrutiny of statutes that deny the right to others. Statutory classifications implicating certain non-fundamental rights, meanwhile, receive only cursory review. Similarly, this court deems unconstitutionally vague or overbroad those laws that impinge on its preferred rights, while letting slide those laws that implicate supposedly lesser values. In fact, our vagueness doctrine served as the basis for the first draft of the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, and it since has been deployed to nullify even mild regulations of the abortion industry. Therefore, regardless of the doctrinal context, the court often demands extra justifications for encroachment on preferred rights while relaxing purportedly higher standards of review for less preferred rights. Substantive due process is the core inspiration for many of the court's constitutionally unmoored policy judgments. Third, substantive due process is often wielded to disastrous ends. For instance, in Dred Scott v. Sanford, the court invoked a species of substantive due process to announce that Congress was powerless to emancipate slaves brought into the federal territories. While Dred Scott was overruled on the battlefields of the Civil War and by constitutional amendment after Appomattox, that overruling was purchased at the price of immeasurable human suffering. Now today, the court rightly overrules Roe and Casey, two of this court's most notoriously incorrect substantive due process decisions. The harm caused by this court's forays into substantive due process remains immeasurable. Because the court properly applies our substantive due process precedents 
to reject the fabrication of a constitutional right to abortion, and because this case does not present the opportunity to reject substantive due process entirely, I join the court's opinion. But in future cases, we should follow the text of the Constitution, which sets forth certain substantive rights that cannot be taken away and adds beyond that a right to due process when life, liberty, or property is to be taken away. Substantive due process conflicts with that textual command and has harmed our country in many ways. Accordingly, we should eliminate it from our jurisprudence at the earliest opportunity. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.